Well done on the amen. Back to Matthew's gospel we go this morning, please. Back to the ninth chapter where we left off last time at verse 14. Matthew 9, verse 14. When we were here last week, we saw the uh, Pharisees and the scribes standing there cross-armed outside of Matthew's house where Jesus and his disciples had gathered to feast with uh, Matthew, the tax collector, former tax collector that is, and the group of people whom he had gathered together, a group proverbially called by the Pharisees tax collectors and sinners. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They demand of the disciples, not so much as a question as an accusation. In other words, their first issue was the company that Jesus kept. We may affectionately call the Pharisees the party poopers of the ancient Near East, for that's exactly what they were. But Jesus answered them, and lovingly so. So, the first objection answered, another raises its head. The first was Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Now they, with some of John the Baptist's disciples, criticized Jesus and his disciples for eating at all. How will Jesus reply? Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit will do his mighty work the same Spirit who inspired and carried along Matthew to record these words of our Savior, now to do a great work in us who are hearing your voice now. In fact, that is our prayer, that it will be your voice that is heard. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put in old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Luke, in his parallel account of the same history, includes this one more line from Jesus' lips. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. It's no small struggle sometimes for the preacher to know where to stop and to start in the reading of the text for the next sermon. These verses actually are really a continuation of the previous ones that we considered last week. The theme is the same. The point is the same, just in different language, and wrapped up in what Luke, in his parallel account, uh, loosely calls a parable. 
Another struggle that the preacher faces when preaching consecutively through the Bible is that he finds himself faced with a repetition of the same themes over and over and over again. You know, the challenge to the preacher is to present these thoughts in ways that are fresh each week. How we who preach and you who hear might prefer that it were otherwise, that the Bible had a greater you know, variety of themes and number of themes within it, how much more interesting it would be, we imagine. But then after being tempted to complain, we're reminded who wrote the Bible. Men of God did, of course, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it has seemed right to God, the Holy Spirit, to bring us back and again, again and again and again to a very small number, a few themes. Jesus himself found himself returning time and again to the same basic few points as, these, uh, in, in, as in these encounters with the Pharisees. They kept swinging the same hammer, and Jesus kept offering them the same nail. Basically, Jesus' ministry and the intensifying conflict with the Pharisees that marked most of his ministry was a soteriological conflict. That is to say, it was a conflict over the question of how a man or woman, boy or girl, is saved. Soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. But then if you look over the history of mankind, that, that after all is the theme that pervades all of history, isn't it? All of man's thoughts and all of man's aspirations. How do I get the good life? Whether in this life or in the next. That's the question. Since the fall of man and Adam, we've been looking for salvation, haven't we? And many, many people are looking for that salvation in all the wrong places. It's only natural. Under our fallen condition, look for salvation where most people are looking for it today. In their own works. In their merits. In their morals. In their own goodness, their own accomplishments. You know, when you take all of the world's religions, and I mean all of them, save one, they and boil them all down, they all really amount to pretty much the same thing, don't they? Salvation by self. Salvation by works. Quid pro quo. Tit for tat. Often after a, a session of premarital or, or marital counseling with any given couple, on my way home, I go and I buy flowers for Debbie. <laughs> There's hardly anything so perfectly suited, designed as marriage counseling, you know, telling other people how they should live together in marriage to make me feel deeply the woeful shortcomings of my own work as a husband. Well, on one particular evening, post-counseling, I brought home tulips from Walmart. Praise God for an easily 
displeased wife. The next morning I was working in the study when Debbie came sweeping in and duster in hand, dusting shelves, dusting the computer, and dusting my desk, and then, and then the top of my head. <laughs> I said to her, am I dusty? We're both getting old and dusty, dear, she answered. Speak for yourself, was my unwise and unthoughtful answer. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I instantly, of course, knew what I had done. How easily we take away with the left hand what we'd just given with the right, right? She stopped at the door on her way out of the room, turned around and said, just as matter-of-factly as you please, I was thinking about making you a nice lunch, but now <laughs> I'm not so sure. I tried my best to backpedal, but alas, it did about as much good as trying to swim one's way out of quicksand, you know. The more my lips moved to the deeper and deeper, I felt myself sinking, so I gave up. A little while later, lo and behold, lunch appears on the table. I mean, my lunch appears on the table. What happened, I asked. The flowers, she said. I saw the flowers again. Later on in that afternoon, I yelled for my study something like, dear, what's for supper? You know what she yelled back? Where are the flowers? <laughs> I don't see any more flowers. Now, that's the way we naturally think of our relationship with God, isn't it? That's the natural way. It's the way we're bent to think. If we want something, if we want God's favor, if we want eternal life, sin has programmed us to think that we need to curry that favor, to buy his good pleasure and his blessing. We need to bring God some bouquets of some sort to earn his attention and his favor. That's basically what all religions, as I say, save one, biblical Christianity, really are in one form or another, what they believe, whether those uh, religions include a, a notion of a personal God or, or not. Whether you speak of Islam, wherein the keeping of the five pillars and making pilgrimages, even in some cases killing oneself in a suicide bombing is the way to eternal bliss. Or in Judaism, which the keeping of dietary laws and the observe, observation of ceremonies is key. Or Buddhism, or Hinduism, or secular humanism for that matter, or even broad swaths of what is considered to, today to be the under the umbrella of Christian. God forbid this be true of any of you. The point is that salvation, however it is defined in this life or in the next, is accomplished according to all of those religions, is secured by works personally performed. Being good, living well, these are the ways of salvation. That was most definitely the view of the lion's share of the Jews in Jesus' day. You know, despite recent attempts by some scholars to repair the reputation of the Pharisees and scribes, ascribing and asserting to them that they were, really did believe in divine grace, which they did to a certain degree, 
The fact remains, and there could be no doubt, that as far as salvation was concerned, it really rested on one's personal behavior. You know, save for a few individuals, the likes of whom we celebrate this time every year. You know, think of Simeon and Anna waiting for, looking for the Messiah, or certainly the Virgin Mary watching for the Messiah to come, first century Judaism had entirely lost its sense of expectation of looking for a Redeemer who would die for his people's sins. They were counting on themselves. They were counting on their works for affecting God's approval. In the Pharisees' case, it was not flowers, but fasts. Fasts that they offered up to God, you know, and they had become quite proficient at this. Though the, the scripture pres- prescribes but one fast on the Day of Atonement, leaving all other fasts voluntary, by the time of Jesus' incarnation and ministry, some groups within Judaism, including the Pharisees, had gone beyond the law of Moses and were practicing feasts regular or fasts regular, regular fasts even twice a week. The issue in this morning's passage, as a a matter of fact, springs from their having noticed this, that the disciples of Jesus didn't follow their regimen. So they continue their grumbling. Though it's been argued that they may simply have been asking here for some information and answer to a straightforward question or response to their observation. Apparently, John the Baptist also led disciples in some ascetic practices like fasting, which was certainly lawful, and particularly right in a time of looking for the Savior to come. The Pharisees, on the other hand, carried out their twice-weekly fasts with gloomy-looking faces, trying to make it obvious to others that they were fasting, that they were afflicting themselves, while at the same time thinking that they were dropping coins into heaven's coffers for their own soul's sakes. Well, Jesus' answer is straightforward enough. He speaks, as the Bible often does, of himself as the bridegroom of his church. In fact, we will finish our worship this morning saying the same thing. Uh, It's a theme often anticipated by the prophets of old who spoke of the relationship between God and his church in terms of marriage. And he replies thusly in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? You know, what sense would would it make? What sense would it make for them to fast? The bridegroom is here. In the practices of the ancient Near East, weddings included feasting, and feasting that lasted for a week. And a feast is no time for a fast, and that, by the way, is why we do not fast on the Lord's Day, even during Lent. The Lord's Day is for feasting, not for fasting. Anyway, Jesus paints the unmistakable picture, right? I'm here. I'm here. It's time to feast. Oh, he says, the days will come, he goes on to say, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, and then they will fast. It's an allusion to the passage from the prophecy of Isaiah. Remember in chapter 53, in which Isaiah writes, by oppression and judgment he was 
taken away. And when that happens, when Jesus is dragged from them, is beaten, is ridiculed, is humiliated, ultimately crucified, then it will be time for fasting. But not now. Not while he's with them. And then he drives home the point, as Jesus often did, and so well, with what Luke calls in his parallel account a parable. Verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put in old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Luke in his parallel account of the same history includes this additional line, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now here's where many readers of the Bible pause, right? We, we, we were with you, Jesus. <laughs> we were right with you until you started into cloth and wineskins and, and wine and, and so on. These verses have been difficult, admittedly, to understand. And, uh, and there have even been commentators who take different views. But a consensus of interpretation has arisen, and basically it is this. Jesus is comparing the Pharisees' attempts at self-salvation to an old garment. You know, generations by this time had been trying very hard to save themselves by their works. So many, in fact, that salvation by works by this time truly was the old-time religion. But here comes Jesus bringing with him a message that, though it is old, you know, it's as old as redemption itself, seems new. Salvation by grace through faith had been so long forgotten, so deeply buried under layers of tradition that when it was pulled out, it seemed like a new garment. But Jesus knew the tendencies of the human heart. Jesus knew what people would want to do with him. To take a little bit of Jesus and to patch him together with their failing religion of their day and of their hearts. Slap on a little bit of Jesus, but keep trusting in the old traditions, the old garment. The problem is that you cannot piece together your own religion. You cannot do that. The pieces don't match. You will only tear the new garment, Christ, to create a religion that can't possibly work. If Jesus made anything perfectly clear in his ministry, it is that it must be Jesus. It must be all Jesus, only Jesus, or no Jesus. Same lesson with the wineskins. The religion of works by any other name is an old, worn-out, stretched-out, dried-out religion. 
It was like wineskins that had already served their purpose. You know, you need to understand that at that time, people were accustomed to stripping the skin off of an animal, and then they would close up the places where the legs and tail had been. And after the skin was properly prepared, it could actually hold liquid inside it. The place where the animal's neck had been became the neck of the container, and into that container they would pour new wine. Now, new wine would still be in the process of fermentation, which means that the yeast making its way through the wine is converting sugar into alcohol, but also that other byproduct it's giving off, carbon dioxide. And as it, as it does, as it did, the skin would expand from the pressure uh, building up inside. You know, still today, you have to vent the vessel in which you're fermenting wine or else it will explode from the pressure. Yes, you can talk to someone who's an expert in that in a little while after the service. <laughs> Old wineskins that had served their purpose had already undergone the expansion process, you see. Putting new wine into old wineskins would be a real mistake. It would result in, an, in a, a doubly disastrous explosion, a split skin and spilled wine. So with the pharisaical system of works of for, uh, for salvation, exactly the same. Trying to hold on to that religion while adding Jesus could only uh, result in disaster. The two were simply incompatible. Jesus had come to bring explosive joy. You know, joy in abundance and happiness and growing. And the old system just could not support, could not contain what Jesus had brought. And the fact is, in Jesus' third lesson, people who have grown accustomed to old wine, who are comfortable with the things as the way they are, with the status quo, are, well, just that. Comfortable. The old is fine, they say. The old's fine. Several years ago, during one of my parents' visits from up north, I opened up a bottle of wine. Oh, it was old, old wine. And... Uh, <clears throat> So I poured a glass for my father. I poured a glass for myself, and uh, and we drank, and I enjoyed what I was drinking. I looked over at my father, and he was grimacing. <laughs> you know, what's the matter? I asked. Can't you tell? He replied, "Well, I confess I'm no connoisseur of of wines. You know, I thought it was good." He made me dump it down the drain, the glass and the bottle, right down the drain. That was painful. And then he reached into his bag and he pulled out a newer bottle. Now it wasn't brand new, mind you. I know enough. I do know this much about wine that that brand new wine is sharp and and uh, and biting to the palate. But it was new compared to my old. He poured it in my glass. He poured some in his. And immediately I understood, even before I took a taste. You know, I thought the old wine was good. 
I would have been satisfied to drink it. But the new, the fruity nose, the vibrant flavors then, and the smooth finish, the new (laughs) was definitely the better. But here's the point. I would gladly and ignorantly have passed on the new because I thought the old was good. That's what the Pharisees did. They had no interest in the new wine of Jesus because they were content with the old, the flat, the, the bitter way. The misery of trying to climb their way to God on a ladder of water was perfectly suitable to their taste. They had grown accustomed to it, so they would stick with it, with the old, even if it meant eventually crucifying the one who brought the new and offered it to them. Now it comes down to you, my friends, and all of you in the hearing of my voice right now. What will you do with this Jesus? Or maybe just as important, let me ask you this. What may you not do? What may you not do with Jesus? Well, first, you may not take a little bit of Jesus and pin him on like a patch to your worn-out garment. In other words, you cannot continue the way you were by nature conceived, trusting in your works, offering your pathetic posies to God, while slapping a little bit of Jesus on yourself for good measure. Considering all that the Bible has to say about the way that a man or woman, a boy or girl is saved, utterly, completely, by the work of Jesus Christ and none of their own, not even a mixture, you will not want the judgment day to find you still dressed in the shabby robes of your own works with a little bit of Jesus patched onto your elbow. It will be better for you on that day, frankly, that you have had, that you should have had no Jesus than that you should have tried to mix a little bit of Jesus with your works. Second, you may not think to drink in Jesus while remaining in your old ways. New wine is simply incompatible with old wineskins of your innate inclination to fall back into your works of do this and do that and everything will be okay. Of that old works religion. Besides anyone who has really met the bridegroom who has come from heaven, as you have, who know and have known his love shed upon his heart or hers, who has measured the sacrifice paid by the bridegroom on the cross, has also measured, by the way, his own personal merits by comparison and found them miserably lacking. Knows exactly of what I speak. And not only lacking, simply incompatible and incapable of supporting the weight of the joy and the glory 
of Christ that has come to you. It must be transformation, mustn't be, mustn't it? It must be transformation from the inside out. New wine in new wineskins. And only Christ can accomplish that change by His grace that makes you a new creation. Root and branch. Third and finally, you must not remain content to drink the old wine. What Jesus is offering you is salvation, fresh and overflowing and expanding with exuberant joy. That's what new wine means in the Bible. That's what it stands for in the Bible. Wine is for joy, joy overflowing. But as long as you are willing to keep drinking the old, tasteless wine of your works religion, you'll miss out on the new. That would be a shame indeed. Here's the only way, dear friends, and all of you in the hearing of my voice right now, the only way you're going to have to dump the old wine down the drain first, all of it, before your cup can be full of Christ. And I tell you, on that day, on the day of all days, when that day dawns, that is exactly what you will want to have, cups filled with Christ, all Christ. And only Christ. Amen.